Thanks so much, Kim. Good morning. Uh, my name's Dan. If this is the first time that we've met, and, uh, and what an exciting day, isn't it, Kim, <laughs> for Claudine getting baptised? Where are you, Claudine? There you are. We, we're stoked. We're looking forward to that. Um, this, for Christians, like this is the biggest deal, right? God gives us two sacraments, two things that mark us out as his people. One of those is baptism. The other is the Lord's Supper. And so what a wonderful thing that you get to declare your allegiance to Jesus this morning, Claudine. Uh, but first, we're going to hear God speak through his word. Uh, and um, just so you know, if, if you're new to church or if you're new to this church, uh, what we normally do here is we take one of the books of the Bible. Uh, you might not be aware, but the Bible is actually a library of 66 smaller books. And so we take one of those and we just sort of start at the start. And we work our way through from start to finish over time. And so that way we, we cover literally every sentence in that book of the Bible. We can't skip the hard things. Which brings us to today. And I don't know what it is that makes this happen every time there's a baptism, but today's passage is a hard passage, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, it, it, it's from the book of Revelation for a start, so you take your bingo card out for tough passages. There you go. There's the first thing to, to tick off. Second thing, it mentions Jesus coming with a sword, presumably of judgment. That's great. So tick that one off as well. Uh, it mentions Satan, mentions sexual immorality, mentions these two guys, Balak and Balaam, which is an Old Testament thing that most of us probably have no idea about. So, you know, bingo, fantastic, <laughs> difficult passage. But here's the thing. I am completely convinced, like utterly convinced, that this is God's word. This is God's word. Every word of this is true. Every book, every paragraph, every sentence, every word, every letter, this is God speaking to us. The Holy Spirit has so worked to make these words God's words, okay? So Jesus has something to say to us this morning, to every single one of us here. And as we've been going through Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we've been hearing Jesus speak to these seven churches in the ancient world. You remember the first one? Who was that? Ephesus, the church that was big on truth, but small on what? Love. Love, that's right. Jesus had something to say to them, an encouragement, but also a warning. Last week, it was the church in Smyrna, Smyrna good. And they, they were a church that, that kept going, even when they were facing severe persecution. They didn't give up. They were faithful even to the point of death. This week, we're hearing Jesus speak to the church in Pergamum. What's he going to say to them? What's he going to say to us? What's he going to say to you? All this stuff about swords and Satan and Balaam and Balak, it all will become clear, okay? <laughs> Trust me, we've got to work it all out. And, and we're going to be left with something that Jesus said to them and then to us today. So how about we pray for his help uh, and then we'll get into God's word. Lord, I'm struck by the way that Andrew prayed this morning um, to you as the triune God. And so we do pray to you, God, our Father, who is the creator and sustainer of everything. And we pray to you, Jesus, God, the Son, who is the Savior and the Lord of the world. And we pray to you, God, the Spirit, who is the sanctifier and sealer of the people of God. Triune God, we ask that you would say to us this morning exactly what we need to hear through your word. And we, say, we pray also you would make us what you need to make of us. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. All right, so open up to Revelation chapter 2 in your Bible. Uh, it should be on page 1029 if you're using a church Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free just to ask someone to go and grab one for you from the back. Uh, or open up your phone. Okay, If you don't have a Bible in front of you, I want to see a phone in front of you. It's okay to use your phone in church if you're reading the Bible on it, right? That makes sense. So, so open up your phone, search Revelation 2 ESV. That's just the translation we use. Revelation 2 ESV. Click the first result and up it'll come. So I just want you to see these words, that's all. So if you're open with me, here we go. Revelation 2. Here's how Jesus starts. He says, To the angel or the messenger of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Huh. I wonder how that makes you feel, hearing Jesus say, I've got a sword in my hand. In fact, um, our brother Ralph, you may know this about him, um, he has a quite a collection of what you could call replicas. He assures me it's a replica, and and indeed, like that's okay. I, this isn't going to kill anyone, right, Ralph? Wherever you are, good. Yeah, well, hopefully not. So, so kids, I don't know if you can see this, Ewan, up the back there. Daisy, this might even be the first time that you've seen one of these. Uh, we don't really see swords often in everyday life, do we? Praise God for that. Uh, but Jesus says, "I come as one with a sharp." two-edged sword in my hand. Like, I'm holding this thing here, and it's not cutting me, but, but if this were a real Roman sword that was around in Jesus' time, it'd be like, ah, and that, that thing would just cut straight through, right? Jesus comes saying, I come bearing a sword. And that, that's got to set us a little bit on edge, doesn't it? I might even just put this here as a reminder of how Jesus comes. He comes with a sword. And that's because there's something that the church in Pergamum gets right and there's something that they get wrong. And Jesus is going to respond to both. We're going to talk quickly first about what he gets right. And this is what it is. There in the church at Pergamum, the Christians there, many of them are not giving in. They won't give in. Look at verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. Which, you know, if Jesus is holding a sword and saying, I know where you live, that sounds like a horror movie, doesn't it? But this is actually an encouragement. Take a look. I know where you dwell, where you live, where Satan's throne is. It's an interesting way of describing a place, like population Satanville, right? Here you are. This is your, this is your home. So imagine like buying a house. You've put down the down payment. You're, you're paying off your mortgage. You've settled down your family roots. The kids are part of the soccer team. And, and Jesus says, hey, this is where Satan lives and you're not moving out anytime soon. What a tough place to be in. Now, what would it have been like there in Pergamum if this is the place where Satan lives and where his throne is? Now, it's not as though there's all this wacky supernatural stuff happening, like demons jumping out from behind walls everywhere. Actually, Satan's tactics are a lot more subtle most of the time, Right? He knows that all he needs to do is apply enough pressure to God's people that they deny the faith or they, they just compromise on what they believe or they compromise in their Christian practice. And he's got them, right? He just needs to turn the screws on them enough from the, the surrounding culture, the world around them, that they end up living sort of as half Christians rather than as full Christians. Now, I want to give you a couple of examples of what that looks like in Pergamum. Here's one. So this here 
is an altar in Pergamum. This is a, a modern sort of uh, protection of it. It's not the whole altar. I'll show you a picture of what it would have looked like in a moment. This is an altar to Zeus. You've heard of him before? Zeus, the, the Greek god, the thunder guy. The, I think he was sort of like the king of the gods or something. Maybe I've watched Hercules too many times. But anyway, um, this, is, this is the altar to Zeus. In Pergamum, they called him Zeus Soter, which means Zeus the saviour. So they believed that Zeus would look after them as a city and would ultimately protect and save them. What the people would do, therefore, is they would come and they would climb up the stairs. And just an architectural point, notice that you have to go up the stairs to come to Zeus, right? He's above you as, as the god. Uh, this is actually like 40 feet high and it towered over the city. And so what people would do, I'll show you the next picture. This is an artist's rendition of what it would have looked like. There would just be a big lineup constantly of people coming up the stairs and then they would make a tribute to Zeus right in the centre of that courtyard there. You see the smoke going up? Sometimes it would be a sacrifice. And so they would come in and they would make that sacrifice. And they believed that if they did that, then Zeus Soter, Zeus the Saviour, would protect them. So what do you do if you're a Christian? If you're a Christian who lives in Pergamum, do you go to the Zeus altar? Do you make the sacrifice? Because here's the thing. If you don't, people will know. Right? They'll see that you're not in line and they'll go, oh, he's not one of us. He's not with us. Or they'll go, gee, you know, she's putting us in danger because we're all bringing Zeus the sacrifices, but she's not. And if Zeus sees that she's not, then maybe he'll stop protecting us. Oh, she's a threat. So do you do it? Right? That's the kind of dilemma that Christians are in here in Pergamum. I'll give you another example. This here is a place called the Asclepion. It's down at the other end of Pergamum. It's like right down in the depths. And the Asclepion was so named because of the god of healing, whose name was Asclepius. Now, he was often signified by a serpent. And let me show you something. This is our modern medical symbol. Do you know why there's snakes on it? Because of Asclepius, right? He was the god of healing, the god of snakes. And so that's where we've got our symbol. There you go. You can thank me later. That makes you a better dinner party conversationalist, okay? Everyone will love you. You'll be very popular. So, Asclepius. And the Asclepion, this place here, was a hospital, all right? God of healing, hospital. Now, not just any hospital. This is one of the best hospitals in the Roman Empire. That's why it was named the Asclepion, after their God of healing, okay? This is like the, what is it? What is it in today's world? Like the Royal Prince Alfred or something like that. I think that's a good hospital. They're in the top 50 or something in the world. It's like the Royal Prince Alfred of the, the ancient world. And so the finest medical minds are all here at the Asclepion. Now, the only problem is, if you turn up looking for, you know, like, like just a, a non-religious, secular kind of medical treatment, that is not what you're going to find. It's the Asclepion, after all. It's named after a god, for goodness sake. So you come in and you get sort of the, the holistic healing package, all right? Like the Asclepius package. So you'll, you'll get your tablets, maybe. You'll get your ointments and your salves, maybe a bit of physiotherapy. That's all fine. But then you'll also have some prayer to the God of the snakes. And yes, of course, you have to pray as well. They even had this thing called dream therapy, where you would go to sleep in this room with incense around you and everything, and you would be praying to Asclepius as you go to sleep. And they believed that uh, as you went to sleep, he would whisper in you to a dream what was going to heal you. 
So that's the kind of thing that you would encounter here at the Asclepion. The question is, if you're a believer, do you go there? Do you go to the Asclepion? Because you know what kind of medical treatment you're going to get there. You know what they're going to require you to do, right? But, you know, you're, you're praying to Jesus as your Lord. You're praying to Jesus for healing, of course. And you're going to see your local GP and that's all going okay. But, but what, if, what if it's your kids who are sick? And what if you've been praying and you've been seeing the GP and things just keep getting worse? And you know, literally, right down the road is the finest hospital in the Roman Empire. And all you've got to do is put up with a little bit of prayer to a god of snakes or something. And he's not a real god. It's not real prayer. You can mouth along the words, right? You can put up with a bit of dream therapy, can't you? Right? This, is, this is the dilemma that Christians face, right? Well, okay, but if I do that, will I really be trusting God? Will I be seen to be trusting God? by the If they see me going into the Asclepion, what will they think about me? Am I being a good Christian witness to the world around me? This is the, the way that Satan is actually pressuring Jesus' people here in this place. But what does he say to the church? Have a look. Verse 13, once again, he says, I know where you dwell. Guys, I, I know where you live. I know what it's like to live in the shadow of Zeus Soter at the top of the city and to have the Asclepion down the road there at the bottom of the city. I know where you live. I know what your life is like. I know the pressures that you're under, says Jesus. And it's the same pressure that I know some of you are under just from talking with you. You're a Christian, but, but you're, you're, living, you're working every single day in a workplace that's pretty hostile to Christians, right? Uh, the sort of thing where they might not outright say Christians are, are fools or whatever, but it's just it's really hard for you to be a Christian in that place. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, you're rocking up and, and they swear up a storm. They invite you to get drunk after work every day and kind of expect that you do come along. Uh, they're, they're telling filthy jokes all the time, like really filthy jokes. And the worst part is the jokes are kind of funny. Like, you, f you find yourself almost laughing along sometimes, right? And th that's, the, that's the hard thing if you're a Christian in a secular workplace. It's so easy to go along with it. And if you get up and you walk away from it all, right, so you, you don't get in the jokes and you don't talk like them or get drunk and all that stuff, then you're, you're an uptight prude, right? You're not one of us. You don't really belong here. But then if you go along with it, even if it's just lip service, then are you really being faithful to Jesus? That's the dilemma. It's the same as the dilemma in Pergamum. I know some of you face this, but I want you to hear this. I want you to hear what Jesus says to the church in Pergamum as they face stuff like this. He says, yet you hold fast to my name, right? You're being faithful and I see it. You hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He's saying, I see that you don't give in. I see that you're still sticking with me, even though it makes you unpopular, even though it makes you less of an interest for your boss to give you a promotion even though it puts you offside with people. Even if, he says to the church of Pergamum, it leads to death. He's this guy Antipas who gave his life. Even if 
You refuse to go and and worship Zeus, and they think you're such a threat that they kill you. Even if you refuse to go down to the Asclepian and get involved in this pagan worship, and it leads from bad to worse for members of your family. He says, I see that you are not giving in, and I am so, so proud of you. That's what Jesus is saying here to the church in Pergamum. And he's saying the same thing to you, if that's you. If you are staying faithful to Jesus, he's saying, I see, I know what it's like. And in fact, I'm still in control, as we've seen the last couple of weeks. Satan's days are numbered. And in the meantime, I am so, so proud of you. Keep going, brother. Keep going, sister. That's what he says to the church in Pergamum and to us. But surely, not everyone in the church at Pergamum was getting this right. Surely not. I mean, have you been to a church? Is everyone who goes to church staying close to Jesus and avoiding compromise? I mean, I've only been part of one church in my whole life, this church, and you don't want to know my answer to that question. I know many of you are, but I also know what it is to be human. We still sin, don't we? We still walk away at times, and sometimes it's even more serious. And so Jesus, he wants to confront those who think that it's okay to give in. There's a problem here in the church at Pergamum. Some think it's okay, whether it's to go and make the sacrifice to Zeus or go down to the Asclepion or whatever the other case may be. They're giving in to the pressure. And the way that Jesus sort of sketches out the problem is he uses an account from the Old Testament involving these two guys, Balaam and Balak. Okay, he says, you have some there, right? I have a, a few things against you. And then you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block, literally a trap, right? The sort of trap that if you imagine a, a box with a stick under it, with a rope, and there's a bird, and the bird comes and goes on it, right? You put a trap in front of the people, the, the sons of Israel. So what is this story all about? I want us to understand this briefly, okay? The, the Balak-Balaam thing. Uh, it's a long story. You can find it on your own time if you want in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 25, and there's a little bit in, in chapter 31 as well. So if you want, you can go and look at that. I just want to give you the highlight that, that we need to know for, for this uh, passage. So hundreds of years before Revelation was written. This is written probably in the 1890s. There's this guy, King Balak. And he is the king of a people called Moab. Now, Moab and Israel, God's people, were bitter enemies. And and over history, Moab had kept trying to invade and get at Israel over and over and over. right? And so Balak is, is thinking to himself, I'd like to do that again. The problem is, at this point in history... Israel is, is very much being blessed by God in terms of their military endeavors, right? So they're going into battles and they're winning. Like you would not expect them to because they're heavily outnumbered, but, but clearly God is blessing them and giving them victory. And Balak sees that and he goes, huh, I want to take them on, but there's no way I can beat them if their God is with them. So he starts to think, how can I get them then? Maybe what I can do is try and separate God and his people, 
Okay, so I'm, I'm going I'm to target their God. And this is at a time where people all thought, you know, every tribe, every little country had its own God. So he thinks, we've got our God, Baal. They've got their God, Yahweh. I'll, I'll just try and hammer their God in some way so he can no longer protect them. Right? Make sense? And so what he does is he finds this local guy named Balaam, uh, who is a prophet, not an Israelite prophet. Uh, but he finds Balaam and he says to him, okay, here, I've got a pouch of silver for you. If you can curse the Israelite God and the Israelite people so that it depowers them, then that's yours. Now, spoiler, it doesn't work. Every time Balaam sort of opens his mouth to pronounce a curse, blessings come out, like praise God and, and blessings upon his people. It just doesn't work. Okay, Balak tries like seven times and it still doesn't work. So he goes, ah, nuts. Okay, this isn't going to work. The problem, though, is Balaam is thinking, well, the, the money is off the table now. I failed. I couldn't curse them. But I still want to get paid. So he goes to Balak. He goes, okay, King Balak, I think there's a plan B here. There's something else that you could do. You, you've tried hammering their God. What if you try and separate the people from their God instead? And Balak, this is like my imagination of how it goes, right? Balak sort of goes, okay, okay, I'm listening. What's your plan? All right, all you've got to do, says Balaam, is get the people to worship your God, Baal, instead. Then they'll be breaking the first two commandments, right? First commandment, worship God alone. Second commandment, don't bow down to idols. So Yahweh, their God, is going to see that. And then instead of blessing them, he's going to discipline or punish them. That's all you've got to do. And so Balak thinks about that and he goes, well, yeah, great plan. How on earth am I going to get them to to worship another god, though. Like, their god is blessing them so much right now. There's, there's no way I could convince them. Ah, have you heard of marketing? Says Balaam. Here's all you need to do. Get your young women. Find the prettiest ones, right? Send them down to the Israelite camp. And get the young women to say to the men there, hey, come on up with us to the, the altars at Peor. Come on up. You can enjoy the worship. You can enjoy a feast. You can enjoy a party. And you can enjoy us. The package deal, right? Very effective marketing. The kind of marketing, actually, that the world runs on today as well, right? And so the women go down. And here's what happens. I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. Numbers 25. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, so the women that King Balak had sent. They invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. See, here's the thing that goes wrong for them. They reckon that they can have both their God and all these things that God is against, the things of other gods. Notice that they don't necessarily think that they're turning their back on Yahweh, on their God. They're just adding something else, right? At the end of the day, we're going to come back to the Israelite camp and keep worshipping our God. But we want both. We're going to stay worshipping our God here while also going off from time to time to have this stuff, the women, 
the food, the party, the Baal, right? So Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What is that teaching? It's the teaching that you can have both. You can have both God and the things that God is against. You want to be on good terms with the empire? Make sure your your neck doesn't stick out too much? Well, that's okay. God understands. He knows where you live, right? He knows what it's like to live under Satan's throne. So that's fine. Go and make the sacrifice at the, the altar to Zeus. Right, then you can come back and you can pray to Jesus. Right? You want to go down to the Asclepion and, and get the fine medical care, but you've got to pray to the God of the snakes and get the dream therapy. Hey, God understands. This is your kids we're talking about. Right? He's fine with it ultimately. And some Christians today think like this as well. Right? I want to be in church and sing worship, and go to Bible study, and also get drunk on the weekends, and also be at the prayer meeting on Mondays, right? It's fine. God understands. You've got to cut loose every now and then. We've got everything in moderation, right? And after all, hasn't Jesus forgiven you? Didn't he die on the cross for all of your sins, past, present, and future? Aren't you a forgiven child of God. So God understands if you need to go and do these things from time to time, blow off a bit of steam. He'll forgive you. He knows how much that person hurt you. So he'll forgive you if you need to blow off some steam at them. He knows how unhappy you are. So he'll forgive you for a a little bit of gossip here and there. He knows how much you're in love, so don't worry about sexual purity. He understands. You can have both. That's the way some Christians think. But how does God respond to his people in Numbers? Have a look at verse 3. His anger burned against them. He's full of rage at their adultery. And that's what it is, friends. It's adultery. It's thinking that they can stay with God while also going and having another partner. That's cheating. I don't know if you've ever had someone cheat on you. I imagine that it feels like absolute rubbish. You can imagine why God is on the warpath here. In fact, later on in the book of Numbers, we read that He sent a plague in response to this that killed 24,000 people. First of all, that, that shows you how deep this sin had run in God's people by this point, doesn't it? But it also shows you how serious this is to God. This is serious. And so back here in Revelation chapter 2, here's what Jesus says to the church in Pergamum. Therefore, repent verse 16, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says, this is serious. I too am on the war path. For anyone who thinks that they can have both God and the things that God is against, beware. Beware. Jesus says, I'm coming with a sword. I will not just let my people get away with this. You need to repent. Either you cut this thing out of your life, this compromise, or I will. 
says Jesus. And it may be that the, the secret that you, you just really desperately hope no one finds out about, well, Jesus actually allows that thing to come out in the church community. Or it may be that you know, the consequences of what you're doing suddenly fall on your head. Jesus is the one actually sovereignly allowing that to happen. Or it may well be, worst of all, that your conscience grows so numb from sinning over and over and over, trying to hold that tension between having God and the thing God is against, that you just go totally numb to God. You go so numb to the whole thing. I've seen this happen to people, friends. And you just end up walking away from Jesus altogether. And that too would be his sovereign discipline and judgment upon you. He says, I'm coming with the sword and either you've got to cut this thing out of your life or I will. There is a stern warning here. The sword cuts, but he also gives a way out notice. There's only two choices. Either I'm going to come and, and cut or you can cut this thing out of your life. Repent, he says. Now, we've looked at this word repent the last couple of weeks. Do you remember what it means? What's it mean? Are you and you got it there? What is it? Yeah. Yeah. T turn around. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, turn around. U turn. U turn. That's it. Chuck a Yui. That's right, you're driving one direction, start, start driving the other, right? So you've been you've been driving this direction of compromise of having both God and the thing that God is against. And you say, All right, no, I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm just gonna have God. I'm just going to worship Jesus and trust in Jesus, nothing else, okay? And I'm, I'm chucking a U-turn. This is not just, you know, oh, I'll go further down the road for a bit. No, no, no. This is right now I'm turning around, three-point turn in the middle of the highway, right? And so I'm throwing it out, whatever this thing is. I'm getting rid of it. I'm burning it. I'm throwing it in the rubbish. It's no longer going to be in my life, right? That's what it means to repent, not just to feel bad. This is the trap some people fall into, Right? They're living this compromise dance. They feel bad about the fact that they're going for the things that God isn't against. They go, well, the fact that I'm feeling bad shows that I'm repenting. And then I come and ask for Jesus' forgiveness. And things are okay. No. <laughs> Jesus says repent. That is actually change your direction, not just feel bad. And when someone truly trusts in Jesus, that is actually the Christian life. Right? Trusting in Jesus leads to living a repentant life. Not just one day, but actually every day. Because we do keep sinning and we do need to keep repenting. Let me show you this verse from 2 Corinthians 5.15. This is a life-changing verse if you don't understand this principle. Christ died for all, that is all of his people, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you catch this? We no longer live for ourselves, friends. If you are in Christ, you're presently trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are not your own. You have been bought for a price. Because here's how it goes, right? As it says there, Christ died. He gave himself for them, for his people. He gave himself on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he took our sin our rebellion against God, our rejection of God upon himself. And then he took the sword, right? The sword in the gut that we deserve for having betrayed God, for having cheated on him, for having committed adultery against him, which all of us do. All of us from having turned away from our creator, that's us, right? But Jesus takes the sword for us. He takes God's judgment 
for us. He is punished as the cheater. He receives God's rage and anger so that we don't have to. And then he rises from the dead, showing that, that the sin has been totally paid for. The judgment is done, right? And death is finished. And now he's risen from the dead to make you who trust in him a child of the living God, a forgiven saint. That's the gospel, if you're wondering what the Christian message is. That's it. And where the gospel leads is if you trust in Jesus Christ, then you are not your own. It's not good works that save you. Faith in Jesus saves you. But faith leads to good works, right? All we need to do is turn from our sin and trust in him. But in so doing, we, we find we are signed up to a life of continually trusting him and continually turning from our sin. He died for you, but not so that you can live however you want. He died that you would live for the sake of him who gave his life for you. Are you with me? Are you catching this? This is absolutely central to what Christianity is about. And so pause for a minute. And I just need to, to ask you, could it be that there is something you've allowed into your life? Like imagine opening the front door of your house and you've, you've let this thing in. Could it be that, that there is something in your life right now that you look at it and you know that Jesus says, there is no way that that's compatible with following me. Could it be that in some way in your life, you're trying to have God, but also have what God's against? If so, Jesus warns you, repent. Now is the time to and I would just ask this other question as well. How's it going for you? If that's the situation for you, you're trying to have God and what he's against. How's that going for you? Is it going well? I mean, is it, is it good? Maybe it is. Maybe it's great. Not for long. Jesus says, I'm coming with a sword. Be warned. He won't let you keep getting away with it. Maybe it's not going so well. Maybe you're finding that every time you keep going back to that sin, it's just like it's searing your conscience. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just lacerating burn over burn over burn. Or you find that every time you pray, just your heart sinks and you're wrestling with this constant low to medium level guilt in your life. How's it going for you? See, and maybe you're hearing all this and you're just thinking, well, I have no idea how to actually change this, right? I don't know if I have really the strength to repent, but I know God can give me the strength. And so I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to name this for what it is. It's sin. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. I'm naming it. It's drunkenness. It's sexual immorality. It's gossip. It's bitterness. It's whatever it is. It's rage. Right, I'm naming it. And maybe I need to go and, and get some help from a, a trusted Christian brother or sister in my life and just be honest about this and have them pray for me and finally just have it out in the open so that God can deal with it and I can be free from this. Right, maybe you're thinking that, and if so, fantastic. 
right? Because you're admitting you're, admitting you're up, up to your neck in this and you need the Lord's help. And that's what Jesus means when he says repent. But it is scary, isn't it? It is scary. Every time I've done this in my life, it's scary. And we do have to do this from time to time as Christians, all of us, all of us. So maybe you're thinking, Dan, can you just give me some motivation? Just something to get over the line with this. Something that, that helps me open my mouth and confess this and, and get it done and get it worked on. Well, I've got good news for you. Jesus ends this letter with the best motivation. Let's quickly go through it. Verse 17. Here's your motivation. You ready? Have a look. To the one who conquers, who doesn't give in, who repents when they fail, who gets back on track, Jesus says, I will give you, you ready? Some bread. And, and a rock. It's good. Last week we had a hat. So we're like one step away from a Christmas cracker here, aren't we? <laughs> but once again, this isn't literal. If you read the book of Revelation, literally, you'll have a really bad time. Right? There's a symbol here. And, and I think behind the symbol are these three promises that Jesus gives to the one who repents and who doesn't give in, who conquers, who keeps going forward. Here's the first promise, okay? Jesus promises to give you what you need. He promises to give you what you need. There's that hidden manna that's referred to there. That's going back to the Old Testament. The manna is what uh, the Israelites ate in the wilderness when they were starving and God provided exactly what they needed. There was no food, so he miraculously gave them food, this manna, which was like a wafer or a, or a bread. Okay. God promises to give you exactly what you need. What's it going to cost you to give up this sin in your life? Well, he promises to give you what you need, whatever it costs you. And what you think you need might be different to what you really need, but God our Father knows better. He will give you what you need. There's the first promise. Here's the second. He promises you eternal joy. Eternal joy. I think that's the meaning, by the way, of the white stone. And if you go and read some commentaries on Revelation, if you've just got a spare afternoon with time to waste, go and do it. Uh, but you will find that... Um, Every man and his dog has a theory around what the white stone means. Maybe you've heard a few. I don't want to get into the whole argument. Here's just what I think it means. I think that the, the white stone is, uh, is alluding to when uh, there'd be the Roman Games. Remember we talked about that last week or the week before? The Roman Games that are like the Olympics. Uh, if you emerge victorious in the Roman Games, you'd be given a stone. In fact, a white stone. <laughs> and that white stone was your ticket of entry to the banquet at the end of the game. So it'd be a big party, you know, you're the victor, you've made it, let's celebrate. So I think the white stone here, especially when you consider the mana, like the, the image of food and bread, is talking about access to a banquet. And not just any banquet, the messianic banquet, the feast, the celebration at the end of all things, when Jesus returns and gathers his people to himself and we party with him because, because this is now uh, Jesus uh, having everything in unity under him, right? And it's a celebration. It's joy that, that sets the tone for the rest of eternity. One filled with joy at being in the presence of God with all his people, filled with gratitude and finally completely satisfied, no longer needing the things that the world offers or the things with which Satan tempts us, but being so filled with joy at being in God's presence that, that we just go, you're enough. 
That's what the white stone symbolizes, I think. Joy. Jesus promises to be your joy. Even if this other stuff might look tempting, he promises to be enough for you, both now and when we reach the banquet and for eternity. Last promise. He also promises something else. Deep intimacy. Deep intimacy. Because notice what's written on the white stone. What is it? A new name that no one else knows. It was my wedding anniversary two, uh, two, two days ago, wasn't it? And uh, it was five years, which is super good. Um, we're babies to some of you, I'm sure. But five years is significant for us at this point. And uh, every wedding anniversary, we write a letter to each other. And I sign my letter with a name that uh, is, you know, it, it, it embodies the, the intimacy that me and Sky have. Would you like to know what it is? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Because <laughs> it's just for us. It's just for me and my wife. Jesus has a new name for you. I don't know if that's literally he's going to replace your name. But it's something here that represents that intimacy. Knowing you to your depths. Inviting you to know him to his depths. And him loving you right down to your core. That's what he promises. And I don't know what my new name will be. But I sure want to be faithful enough to find out. So what is it that the Lord may be calling you to get rid of? To cut out of your life? What compromise do you need to throw away? So that you might know his provision, his joy and his intimacy all the more. Let's pray. Lord, I want to give us just a brief moment to reflect now. Life is so busy and so full of voices. Just help us be silent for a moment and reflect on what you've said to us. Holy Spirit, however you might be leading us, I pray that you would also give us what we need to do what we need to do. Whether it is to just keep persevering faithfully or whether it is to cut something out. Lord, we know that wherever you guide, you provide. We know that whatever uh, you, you call us, whatever you command us to do in worship, you provide the means. Help us, Lord, to see such a vision of you in your love and your truth and your justice that we can't help but worship and love and trust and obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite Claudine up. Come on up. Because what we've been talking about this morning really is, is pictured in baptism, isn't it? As we think about clinging to Jesus for forgiveness and new life. We've been talking about that. And that's, that's what Claudine is picturing here in baptism. As she goes down in the water, it's not baptism that saves her, by the way. It is uh, 